ECU? Do you breathe purple and gold? Are you ready to hoist the colors? Now, time for the most in-depth look at the world of ECU athletics. Welcome in to Hoist the Colors with your host, Stephen Igo on 94.3 The Game. Watch the show live on Facebook and at 94.3thegame.com. Now, here's your host, Stephen Igo. Welcome in to this Monday, October 30th edition of Hoist the Colors on 94.3 The Game. It is a reaction Monday. East Carolina loses to Texas San Antonio in San Antonio 41-27. They drop to 1-7 on the season. The first 1-7 start for East Carolina in 20 years, dating back to 2003 when they went 1-11 first year under John Thompson. So tough start for the Pirates. It's been a tough season for East Carolina. We'll be taking all comments today on today's show. We're live on Facebook, live on YouTube. If you got something to say, you want to get something off your chest, or you just got a question, let us know. And we'll answer it throughout the show on YouTube and Facebook, as well as Twitter. Also, if you want to call in, we are taking live callers, 252-561-8255. Again, that number is 252 252- Five six one eight two five five. Philip Pilkington is back in the studio. He will take your call throughout today's show if you want to come on the show in that fashion. So forty one twenty seven. I thought East Carolina showed some improvements, which we'll get into here. But at the end of the day, I wrote post game. When you're not a good football team, which ECU is not right now, and you're one and seven, you find different ways to lose. So we saw the offense take a step forward at times, and then we saw the defense unfortunately take a step back, facing a very good team, but had some huge busts that were costly, and at the end of the day, despite a pick six, despite some much-needed receiver touchdowns, it resulted in another loss for East Carolina against a good UTSA team. So, 1-7, 0-4 in the conference. Phillip back in the studio, and uh, we'll get his quick take before we get into some of these comments throughout the show, but Phillip, just up. You know, kind of unfortunately kind of went how I thought the game would go. Maybe a few more points were scored. But in the end, a double-digit loss for East Carolina. And this was always going to be a tough game. So I think, you know, not too surprising of a result. But at the end of the day, another loss. Actually, we're going to skip this and we're going to go to Logan, who's on the phone right now. All right, let's do it. Logan, what's up? Hey, how are you doing, Steven? Doing good. How about you? Good. I'm good. I just had a quick question. Um, I've been hearing from another a number of people calling in throughout the week talking about how it appears that Mike can't win um, with his recruits. He could only win with Mo's recruits. Um, and I just wanted to see if you thought there was any validity to that. I feel like a lot of his recruits have done well under him. Keaton Mitchell, Calhoun, Ryan Jones, Isaiah Winstead where all his recruits are transfers. And uh, the defensive side of the ball is basically all his recruits from what I'm understanding. So just wanted to get your opinion on on that take in regards to his recruiting ability and everything like that. Uh, thanks, Logan, for the call. I mean, it, I think you look, you look at the results, it, it's been a mixed bag in terms of offensively for sure. I think they've missed on, on too many guys, and I think that's the biggest issue, specifically the offensive line. You know, even a lot of their starters right now are transfers, so they didn't recruit well enough, I think, out of high school. You know, one of the guys they did land out of high school wasn't a shot Strother. He became a starter and then, of course, transferred to Oregon after spring. That was a tough loss, but you still got to have more than, 
you know, one or two high school recruits pan out. So uh, I do think, again, Keith Mitchell was a high school recruit. Calhoun was a high school recruit. Of course, uh, Rajay Harris was a high school recruit. C.J. Johnson actually came in. I think he was committed to Montgomery and then signed with with Coach Houston after the coaching change. So he's kind of one of those you could count, I guess, both ways, although Mo first identified him. He was a local kid either way. But I, I think it's been a mixed bag, and I think overall the the lack of hitting on the recruits offensively, specifically at wide receiver, offensive line, and, of course, quarterback, uh, is, is what's costing EC right now. I think, you know, covering recruiting firsthand – I think Coach Houston has done a, a solid job recruiting. I actually really like this year's recruiting class that he's put together and last year's. Unfortunately, you know, there's a couple of guys who are still a few years away from making an impact. That's the problem with high school football recruiting. It's long-term, not short-term, and why you need to use the portal so much. But I, I don't think it's a case where like this staff can't recruit at all. I just think they've unfortunately had wrong misses in the wrong areas. They took a ton of defensive linemen very early in their tenure. I wish they would have done the same with the offensive line. To me, they didn't take enough offensive linemen because you're not going to hit on all those guys. You almost want to take as many as you can. And if you hit 50%, then you have a few guys who pan out. But to me, they didn't take enough. And I think that's biting them now. And then the receiver recruiting, you know, I did a study a few weeks ago. Brock Spalding right now is like the only scholarship receiver from the 2020 through 2022 recruiting classes that's still on scholarship out of high school. That's still with the team. So everybody else did their transfer or walk on. So that has not been good enough as well. You've had turnover at receivers coach, which has been an issue. And then offensive line recruiting just hasn't been well. And then obviously the big ones quarterback. So I don't, I don't know if I really answered your question, Logan, but I, I guess the, my answer would be it's been a mixed bag and, and that's what's cost ECU right now because you can't always just go to the portal and find a quick fix. Like we're finding out this off season. All right, that's uh, our Thank call you. from – yep, absolutely. Appreciate it, Logan. Thanks for calling in. 252-561-8255 if you want to call in. Uh, Philip, do we have anybody else lined up? Or yeah, we, Cameron's on the line right now. Up? Okay. All right, Cameron, uh, what's up, man? What's up, Igo? Uh, listen, you know, I'm sure you've heard uh, other post-game calling shows, what people are commenting and things like that, but I – You've been, you've been around the program probably more than anyone. You, you're, you're more into detail in terms of the research with the coaching staff and uh, the athletic director. Um, I got to be honest with you, man. If we go if we go one and eleven, which I, it's a strong possibility, I do think we can beat Tulsa. If we go one and eleven, how how much pressure do you think is on John Gilbert to make a change? And what would you think if we go one and eleven? The percentage is that Mike Houston could not be that may not be the head coach next year. I just feel like they're gonna, there's going to be a lot of pressure because this is year five and it's such a disaster uh, that there could be a lot of external pressure on Gilbert to make a change. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Look, if you go 1-11, all bets are off. I mean, that would be that would qualify as the arguably the worst season in ECU history in terms of wins and losses. You would not have a single win over a Division One slash FBS team. And if you look at the schedule, how many teams that ECU has played are spending more on football than what ECU is or has a bigger NIL presence than what ECU does? I mean, maybe half, if that. So, look, I mean, to be there in year five, there would have to be some some hard decisions to be made. I mean, I think that at that point it comes down to John Gilbert because there's going to be – look, there's already people that want to change. I mean, that's, that's football. That's college sports these days. It's a win-now business. 
but especially when you're in year five. And I think there's definitely a path for Coach Houston to get it turned around. But with each successive loss, that pressure does build, and you you lose uh, you know the chance to gain some momentum. Like I even look at this game against Tulane this weekend, almost as a de facto bowl game for ECU. Like they're clearly not going to be playing in a bowl, but if you go out and you, you're hosting a ranked team at home, if you get this win. That's a huge momentum swing. So there's still things to play for. Clearly, ECU is going to be an underdog this weekend. They're going to be an underdog at FAU. ESPN Football Power Index has them with a greater than 50% chance of winning at Navy. I don't know if I agree with that, but it's a possibility. And then I think they'll be favored or at least a toss-up game against Tulsa to finish the year. So if you if you finish 1-11 and you lose to Tulsa at home and you can't beat Navy and you know you just don't win a single FBS game, I think John Gilbert and uh, you know the donors. I think they they have a decision to make. I think they got to ask some some very tough questions. You got to ask Coach Houston, you know, how are we going to fix this? There's going to be a lot of the fan base if you go winless the rest of the way that are uh, that are not going to buy season tickets next year without a, a, some major changes. So it becomes a a very uh, you know real question at that point. I mean, there's not too many college football programs across the country. If you have a coach going one eleven in year five of his tenure, that you know they're going to bring him back. So clearly, the financials play a role, but that is also the reality too. That you know there's got to be a standard as well. This is a football school. This is a football program. If you go one eleven and you run it back, you know there's got to be some pretty severe questions and changes otherwise, and you know a lot of explanation as to all right. Here's why we're running it back. Here's how we're going to fix it. Here's why we need fans to still invest, et cetera. So four games left. If it ends 1-11, uh, it's, it's going to be a dark time. But, you know, we'll see how it plays out and uh, starting this weekend. But thanks for the call, Cameron. Absolutely. Thank you, guys, as always. All right, there's Cameron and uh, one of our devout listeners, always commenting on, on Twitter as well. Uh, appreciate the call again. If you want to continue to call in, Two five two five six one eight two five five. Philip, do we have anybody else standing by? Or are we good? We're good as of now. Okay, keep me updated. I'm I'm still we'll in the home studio. My uh, my my voice has returned for the most part. I now can barely hear out of one ear as I continue to try to get past last week's sickness. But we are uh, we're making our way uh, to the other side. And so, Philip, I do want to ask. While you have a moment and you're not answering phones, just kind of your takeaways from the game against UTSA. What did you think when you were able to watch it? I kind of thought it was one of those games that just kind of looked like, and uh, I'll have to go quick because the phone's ringing, another American game that we've always kind of had where it's two high-scoring games or you know, kind of a high-scoring game overall, and unfortunately – we just lost because we let up too many explosive plays. Coach Houston talked about it post game. You know, it was like the team played solid down in and down out, but you let up too many explosive plays. That was the difference, and that has kind of been the history of the American Athletic Conference since we've been in it. Uh, offense looked a lot better. Defense, like I said, down in and down out, not terrible. They only had one drive over ten plays. Unfortunately, too many explosive plays, and that was it. So I'm going to toss it back to you, so I can answer the phone. Yeah, there was a metric put out by uh, the, this guy. I think I think it's like College Football Graphs. Parker is his name. I don't know his last name on Twitter. Basically breaking down, you know, net success rate play. It means like kind of your average play to play throughout the game. You know, who's having more success? At ECU, actually finished in line with UTSA. It's just the problem is you give up those five, six explosive plays, and you're not going to win the football game. Especially when East Carolina, conversely on offense. 
we saw a few big plays. Of course, Alex Flynn hit the big one early. And then we saw, you know, some, some better drives, but just not, you know, ECU offensively right now does not have that explosive play potential, you know, down in and down out, especially Javius Bond missing his third consecutive game. Shane Calhoun, unfortunately, will be out for the rest of the year at tight end. Not that he's an explosive playmaker per se, but definitely hurts to not have him. So UTSA has the big play ability. They hit it, and unfortunately that ended up costing East Carolina the football game. Despite some improvements made, it's just like, man, where was this against Charlotte or Marshall and maybe even at Rice? You know, if you could go back in time and put Flynn in as the guy from day one and you can't do that, maybe you have a few more wins right now. But that's just uh, – unfortunately, you can't do that. All right, Philip, are we ready on our next caller? We are. Keith's on the line. What's up, Keith? Hey, thank you for having me on. I had two things I wanted to ask. Um, to the point of the calls that have already been made, if you're Mike Houston, yeah, you play for him or Garcia or whomever, Navy, some of the other games, three wins is a lot better than one, save your job. But wouldn't the prudent thing to do is to go ahead and play some of these other guys for the future, preparing them for next year, particularly quarterback and some other positions. And the other thing I would simply say is I'm a buck stops here guy. I hold Gilbert responsible. He had kind of a knee-jerk reaction to the couple good years we had and locked Houston down at $2 bucks a year or whatever. And, you know, if someone needs to go, I would actually go all the way that high up and just clean house the whole way down. And I'll, I'll uh, sit back and hear what you have to say. Thanks for having me on. All right, Keith, thanks for the call. Uh, first off, as far as, you know, the quarterback situation, we've kind of talked about it with Raheem Jeter, the true freshman. You know, at what point do you give him some reps? I, I think, you know, for me, I definitely, at the least, I look at the Tulsa game, if you're 1-10 and and you know, maybe this isn't the, the thought process of the coaching staff because they feel like they'll they'll need to win the game, you know, for job security reasons. But for me, Raheem Jeter, if I'm one and ten or even two and nine going to that Tulsa game, you know, just start Jeter at that point. I mean, what do you have to lose? Uh, you know, for me, I think there are some limitations to this game. I mean, clearly he's a true freshman, and the biggest problem is you've got an offensive line that has struggled, and you've got a receiving core that has been inconsistent. So, like. I don't think you're necessarily putting him in the best position to succeed if you just roll him out there as the start of the next four games and, you know, kind of with, with no holds bar, so to speak. I mean, you, yeah, he could learn from that, but he, he could also hurt his confidence from that. And so I would, to me, save it towards the end of the season, maybe pick some spot work here in the next few weeks to get him some reps. The last thing you want to do is end up in a situation where going into next season – you're like, do we have the guy or not? I mean, I really thought they should have gotten Mason Garcia more time in recent years. I know you had Holt Nailers, but there was opportunities to get Mason some more time. And then we ended up in this predicament where ECU is right now, where we, we finally got Garcia time, but it ended up costing ECU some wins because he wasn't ready yet. So uh, if you can, you try to figure out if he's the guy, and you do that with several other positions as well now that bowl eligibility is gone. As far as your second point, uh, John Gilbert, you know, he did – it's kind of a weird situation because, like, he was hired when Mike Houston was being hired. So, like, he technically hired Mike Houston, but really Dave Hart hired him. I do agree, though, the extension, it came after the first winning season. I do think it was important at that time for East Carolina to make a bigger financial commitment to football. At the time, they were paying Houston and his staff near the bottom of the league, 
in terms of pay, all that sort of stuff. So he did need a raise. You could argue maybe maybe not that much of a raise, but hindsight's twenty twenty. I think the thinking at that time was, all right, Mike Houston's going to continue to win at a high level. If he goes and takes a bigger job, then we're now ready to hire the next coach at this same price point and get a very good coach in place. Right now, that hasn't happened, and you know it, it kind of has backfired in, in that term a little bit. Um, and also, Mike Houston's agent is one of the best in the business. I mean, he, he's represented by Jimmy Sexton, who basically has every big coaching client in America. So, like, he was going to get paid if there was going to be an extension on the table. And John Gilbert probably had to, you know, agree to some of that as well. So, that's just kind of that as far as Gilbert being responsible. I mean, you do look at AD ECU coaches being let go over the the course of the the football program, a lot of them go hand in hand. Um, you know, I don't know if this situation qualifies as one. If you're talking about buying out an AD and a coach, that's a lot of money that ECU doesn't really have right now. So I don't know if that's financially even possible right now. You know, John's got a lot of time left on his contract, as does Coach Houston. So kind of stuck right now in, in terms of that. And uh, But either way, tough decisions got to be made at the top. I, I go, so if I could, can I make one? By? Oh, sorry, go ahead. It's up. Yeah. I was going to say, I want to make one ahead, other man. point about the kind of the Gilbert thing. I understand that football is, you know, the leading driver in college athletics. That's what brings all the money. That's what's, you know, pushing this conference realignment. But um, if you're upset about this whole situation, you know, not really to get in and take either side of it. But you get to see the other stuff that John Gilbert, I think, has really done good in this program, too. I think Mike Schwartz was a phenomenal hire as men's basketball being the number two most important money driver in college athletics, as well as our non-revenue sports. I think Gary Higgins is doing a phenomenal job with the soccer team. You look at Adler Augustine and the volleyball team and, you know, the extension to Kim McNeil and the faith they've had in her. So, And I know I've missed a few other coaches that haven't – that I – just forgot to mention that he has hired and that have really gone well. I think we've had a new tennis coach under him. The tennis team is getting much better. And so I get football as a leading driver, but, you know, if you hindsight, like you said, it's 2020, if you look back and say, oh, he made one mistake, if you believe it's a mistake, I don't really think it was, uh, you know, two years ago on one, one, one coach, look, he's made a lot of hits on other coaches as well. So that's just kind of my defense there for John. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to encompass there, and clearly the AD answers to the chancellor, and that is, uh, you know, something Chancellor Rogers will have to uh, take into consideration as well. So, a lot of moving parts there, and then the board of trustees also involved. So, um, look, we'll, we'll go down that path if we need to. But let's get our first break in. Appreciate the call again, Keith. And uh, if anybody else wants to call in, two five two five six one eight two five five, we will answer those calls again. Two five two five six one eight two five five. We'll get into more of your comments on the other side as well. This is Hoist the Colors on a Reaction Monday. This is ECU head football coach Mike Houston, and you're listening to Hoist the Colors on 94.3 The Game. Welcome back into this Reaction Monday. East Carolina falls to UTSA 41-27. to We've got several calls uh, that have already come in. If you want to call in, 252 Five six one eight two five five is our number. We so do have a caller right now. St- oh, sorry. Studio. Yep, yep. Let's, uh, let's patch him through. All right, we got Mike on the line. What's up, Mike? Hey, hey, Stephen. Doing all right today? Doing good. How about you? Doing pretty good. Just wanted to throw a couple of points out there, and we 
we hear the argument of you can't afford to fire Houston, you can't afford not to, and I don't envy being in Gilbert's shoes right now, but I guess now is when you have to start crunching numbers, and, and obviously if they go 1-11 one and, and don't fire Houston, then you say, okay, we realize we're going to lose season ticket holders. And so you put the math together. We This round number is 20,000 season ticket holders this year. Half of them say, no, we're not coming back at average of $300 per season ticket. That's $3 million bucks. And Houston's contract buyout is, what, four, four and some change. So uh, that's really something he'd have to go through there and understand. Um, sorry. And from th- from there, and also, it's easy to Google. It's easy to look up. Look at what Mike Houston's wins are while he's at ECU and the records of those teams. It, it's not encouraging. Uh, so, again, a, a couple of points to think about. Uh, I'll hang up and listen to what you have to say. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. Look, I mean, John Gilbert and, you know, every AD faces criticism from their fan bases, but I feel like he's a pretty calculated guy in a good way. Like, he's going to make a smart decision. He's going to evaluate everything um, and, and look at everything, take everybody's opinion into account, and then make the best decision for ECU. So, Part of that, a big part of that, will be the financial aspect because you got to make revenue. Whether it's you know paying coaches versus selling tickets, et cetera, you know th- th- there's a lot that goes into that formula. A lot of that is season ticket based because that is the biggest revenue driver for East Carolina athletics and really kind of the backbone of ECU athletics. And you look at next year's schedule, you do have App State coming to town, but you play Norfolk State. You play the other teams in the American. I don't think any real name opponents outside of App. So your schedule isn't going to drive season ticket sales necessarily. So that's a concern as well if you're coming off a bad year. So there's a lot that has to be evaluated there. And, uh, of course, above my pay grade, but certainly that all goes into the decision. If you go 1-11, that has to be you know looked at and discussed. As far as the, the, the games, or Coach Houston has won, he really, you know, there, there's – been kind of a struggle to get that marquee win. You know, I did cover the BYU game, being there in person. I thought that was one of his best wins overall during his tenure. You know, of course, the NC State game, the Cincinnati games last year, those were two chances of marquee wins. You, you felt just short. There have been uh, a few others as well. South Carolina in uh, in 2020, uh, 2021, excuse me, was a, was a frustrating loss that should have been a win. So there have been a lot of close calls that for one reason or another hasn't resulted in the win. But for me, that goes back to you've got to evaluate, all right, what are we doing? Clearly, the team that has the most talent is going to win the majority of the time. But there are ways, and you can look at ECU's history in football, there are ways to either A, out-scheme, out-motivate your opponent to where you can get those big wins, get those marquee wins. And maybe it's harder now than ever. I don't know. Um, but it, feel, it still feels like it is possible. And what's the, di- when it, you know, what's the difference between finishing those games or coming up short? Do we need to change scheme? Do we need to change philosophy? All that has to be considered if your coach Houston coming back next year, especially offensively. We talked about that a little bit last week as well. You know, you can't just line up and play power football if you're not if you're not going to be able to get the offensive lineman each and every year. So there, there's got to be a lot of self evaluation in a year like this uh, across the board: administration, coaches, uh, players, fans, etc. So we'll uh, we'll see where it goes. But thanks for the call. Mike. All right. Again, our number 252-561-8255. Philip, we, we clear to answer Twitter or we got another caller standing by? As of now, we're good to answer uh, Twitter. 
All right, interrupt me if needed. Again, I am at home in the home studio and uh, Philip back in our main studio. All right, a few comments on Twitter. We also got some on social media. We'll get to in a little bit. Uh, Pack the Jungle says, it was nice to see that there was a noticeable change of the offense this past Saturday. It appeared they left the running back in to protect and went downfield and out wide more often. That said, we need to do it at home also. Can't have full-on apathy kicking in at home. And, yeah, they did open the game going max protect, taking some shots. UTSA was blitzing early on. That left some receivers open downfield. So we did see offensive adjustments. Unfortunately, once UTSA kind of diagnosed what ECU was doing, they were able to adjust. And then at that time, it became tougher for ECU to move the football. So I do applaud the offensive staff for trying some different things. I applaud Flynn for taking some shots. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it would have been nice to have that against Charlotte, Marshall Rice, but, you know, Unfortunately, it didn't happen until uh, this past game. All right, uh, next comment here. Jonathan says, ECU offense looked good for one and a half quarters. Then UTSA made those adjustments like we just talked about, he says. And the ECU offense made none. Would have been shut out in the second half if not for the garbage time touchdown. Touchdown, he says, the offensive line is a mess. I think if Flynn had a decent offensive line, this offense could have more success. He then had ECU's defense definitely had their worst game of the year, but they've been carrying the load this season. They just had a lot of bone coverages that led to big plays. I'm not as worried about Harrow and his D as I am Donnie in the offensive line and the offensive issues. Matt says, it's a great sign that the team has refused to give up or roll over in games. It speaks volumes for the culture Houston has established. We can talk till the cows come home about the scheme or lack of talent, but you can't deny the effort. The kids haven't given up, so why should we? I do think, Philip, it is important that, you know, I, I kind of got the sense a lot of fans were expecting this to just be a total shellacking Saturday, like 50-3 to three type deal. I, I haven't at any point seen this ECU team not give effort, and I, I don't think that's necessarily going to change because there's, there's issues on the field, but I do think the culture is still at a good spot. I know nobody wants to hear that when you're 1-7, but they play hard. They just have their deficiencies, Philip, and that – yeah, that's what makes it tough. I don't think this is like a bad locker room or a bad culture or toxic program or anything. They're just not good enough right now. No, I agree. And, you know, one of the things that this helps with is next year because uh, it helps with recruits and it helps with the kids who are going to stay around, you know, continuing to be bought in because the minute – the team is not bought into what the coaches are doing. They're turning on the coaches. They're turning on each other. Um, that's when you really have to talk about letting go of a head coach. And I think that could be what saves Mike Houston's job and the fact that, you know, these kids are fighting in for each other. You know, you brought up one of the thing that a lot of people thought would be a, you know, a, a big blowout. It was not only not a big blowout, but we actually put up the points. Too. You know, it's not like UTSA's offense came out, rolled over, thought it was going to be an easy win, and we lost 14 to 3. No, we lost 41 to 27. We put up 366 yards of offense and had 20 first downs. They only had 18 first downs. You know, if you did that in a couple every game this season, you would probably have two, maybe even three wins, and we'd be having a much different conversation right now. So what that proved, this is probably the best team they've played since Michigan, and you go out there and you play probably the best game you've played all year against an FBS program. That speaks a lot of the character of our kids and a lot of the character of the coaches and with the you know what they've established here in Greenville, and uh, it gives you hope that you know you brought up the whole like this is like our bowl game against Tulane, and the reason why you were able to say that, Stephen, was because. Of 
of the character these kids played with. Had they gone out there and gotten blown out and you saw the kids you know, yelling at each other on the sidelines, I don't think you would have made that comment. But you, they have given you the ability to make that comment with the character and the hard work that they've continued to play with despite the record being 1-7. and seven. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a frustrating year. There, there's no doubt. And, and um, we'll see. Again, four games left. We'll see if they can keep it together, pull out a few more wins. I do think that would show a lot from this coaching staff and this team if they can do that. You know, clear if the wall if the wheels continue to fall off and it just gets really ugly, then that's a whole different conversation. But it's just frustrating because it's like, where was this against Charlotte? Uh, and and it's just you know, it, it's hard to watch ECU lose to Charlotte and then see Charlotte get crushed by FAU. On Friday night, and we've seen Marshall and App really regress as the season goes on. So it's just it's uh, frustrating right now if you're an ECU fan. Uh, Matt says Gerald Green got some touches and was productive. He says, "Why didn't we go back to him? If we did, I may have missed it." They gave him a couple of rushes after his big run. The problem was ECU was down multiple scores at that time, so you know you did have to have a sense of urgency as well, Matt. And I do think we need to see more of Gerald Green going forward. I do think that is a positive coming out of the game. You know, we saw Jalen Johnson step up. We saw Chase Sewell have another solid game. So there, there were some positives. I thought Gerald had as much explosiveness as any back we've seen outside of Javius Bond. So that's a positive as well. Um, we got a lot of questions about the offensive line and the issues there. Look, we've talked about that a lot. Preston says, who is our starting offensive line for next year based upon those playing this year and those on the team in development? Well, that's a loaded question because – to, to be honest, you got you got eligibility with every offensive lineman on the roster uh, as far as next year. Now you have to ask yourself, all right, are all these guys coming back? A. B, you know, do we need to upgrade the talent? I mean, I think that's a clear yes. But C, also, what changes can we make positionally? Like Parker Moore, okay, he spent his entire career at right tackle, right guard. Now he's being asked to play left tackle this year because you don't have a left tackle. To me, he's more of a right tackle, right side of the line player. He's played it three, four years. Maybe if you get a left tackle, you can move him back to the right side and he becomes a better player. Um, you know, maybe you develop Jacob Saker, Richard Pierce. Hampton Ergel comes back. He's a year older. So you got some pieces you can work with. You just got to get better. And it's, to me, it starts at tackle. You got to get better at offensive tackle. This team can't pass protect right now in a drop back and pass situation. We've talked about the numbers. Pro Football Focus ranks them near the bottom of the country. You do have a couple of young offensive tackles. Jamarian McCrimmon is going to be a very good player. He's just a true freshman, though. He's redshirt, and he's going to need time. Marlio Neolian is another guy, 6'8", true freshman, offensive tackle type. They need to develop. So if I'm Team Boneyard, if I'm in charge of NIL, I'm spending money on a quarterback this offseason, but I'm spending my second most money on an offensive tackle because I think if you get tackle figured out, you can kind of fill the rest in. It's easier to find a guard than it is a tackle, and that's where I would start. But you do have some pieces with eligibility left. That is the good thing. And I think Alan Mogridge, if he's back as offensive line coach next year, depending on what happens with the offensive staff, I think you can grow there. There's just there's going to be there's going to be a need to commit financially and a need to commit to really evaluate what they're doing up front. Uh, a combination of new and improving pieces is kind of my answer right there. All right. Philip, if we don't have anybody else standing by on the phone, let's get our second break in. We will come back. We will uh, we'll, we'll take any other callers, read some more comments. We also got to get to our East Coast Agency Pirate of the Week. 
and discuss that as well. So let's go ahead and hit a break. We'll come back. We'll continue to answer your questions on the other side. This is Hoist the Colors on a Reaction Monday. Here there be pirates. Back to Hoist the Colors with Steve and I go. How good is this? On 94.3 The Game. Welcome back into Reaction Monday. ECU Falls, UTSA, 41-27. Got a lot of viewers on YouTube, Facebook. If you're viewing, check us out on 94.3 The Game YouTube page. Subscribe now. That way you get all of our live uh, update videos. Every time we go live, you'll get uh, notified if you hit the notifications bell. So definitely subscribe to 94.3 The Game. We're daily, 12 noon to 1 p.m. every weekday. And then, of course, Patrick Johnson, so 5 to 6 p.m. every weekday as well. And then the Logan Zone on Fridays from 5 to 6 p.m. too. So if you want to call in today, 252-561-8255. That is our number for uh, the call-in line. Let's get to our East Coast Agency Pirate of the Week. This week we are going with Jaquan McMillan, a former Pirate. And this is a bit of a selfish pick because I am a Denver Broncos fan, but also the guy is balling out. He has emerged as Denver's number one nickel and really their best cornerback outside of Patrick Sertain the second, And has, has played a big role. Of course, Denver gave up 70 points to the Miami Dolphins earlier this season. That was well-documented. They have played a lot better recently. A lot of that is due to Jaquan McMillan emerging at nickel. Yesterday in the 24-9 win over the Kansas City Chiefs, he had his first career interception in the league off Patrick Mahomes' diving interception across the middle, sparking Denver's 24-9 win over the Chiefs, breaking a 16-game losing streak to Kansas City for the Broncos. He also added six tackles, and he had two tackles for loss, including a stop on third down where he beat a block made a tackle behind the line of scrimmage, forcing a Chiefs field goal. Denver did not allow Kansas City to score a touchdown. First time Patrick Mahomes has been held out of the end zone since 2021. So Jaquan McMillan, our East Coast Agency Pirate of the Week. Stay protected this hurricane season with East Coast Agency, your trusted independent insurance partner. When the storm hits, you'll be glad you chose ECA. Their comprehensive insurance plans are tailored to help you and your loved ones secure. Remember, it doesn't matter who your agent is until it does. Call ECA at 910-446-5061 or visit their website at www.eca-insure.com. Appreciate Tim Vleet for his support of Hoist the Colors. Again, Jaquan McMillan, our East Coast Agency Pirate of the Week. All right, let's get back to answering your comments, your questions. Philip Pilkington is in the studio. We're recapping ECU's 41-27 loss to UTSA. They're now 1-7 on the season. Matt on YouTube, he says, how many wins does Houston need in order to save his job? And he says, would Houston restructure his contract to stay on? I mean, you just don't hear about a lot of college coach restructuring contracts, so I, I just don't think that's realistic. I think you got to win. I mean, to feel good, or not even good, but you know, you, you just got to win, win some games. I mean, if you – if you go one eleven, the tension, the pressure is going to build each week. If you can just get off the schneid with a couple of wins here or a win or two down the stretch, I think it just eases things a bit, Philip. I mean, I don't know what. What do you think? I mean, maybe it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Maybe Mike Houston's coming back either way, but I feel like there's got to be some pressure to win some games here. You don't want to go zero and eleven against FBS competition. Yeah, you know, you bring up that the restructuring doesn't happen a lot. Not that it doesn't happen other places, but I think that's more of an NFL thing for cap room with players. Um, that is kind of the weird spot, though, that they're in. It's like, 
you want to put the pressure on the coach to win because you want to win, but, you know, realistically with the whole financial side of it and the fact that, you know, kind of going back to that article that you wrote a few weeks back about a lot of these recruits no longer being here until a point I've made where you maybe didn't have kids that were fit for your program due to the fact that you were recruiting them via Zoom because of COVID, um, you realize that it's not all on the coach, so you don't want to just fire him if it's not all his fault. But like you said, you do have to – there's got to be some pressure because you know, you and I have kind of talked about it. Going 1-11 is pretty much going 0-11. You can count that one FCS win when you win another game, but when you go over against FBS competition, it's tough. So I think the good thing is Mike Houston puts enough pressure on himself to win these games. You know, we've talked about how just distraught he has seemed after these losses. You can hear it in his voice on his radio interviews with Jim Zoki. So I think he's putting enough pressure on himself and um you know, it's just really an odd situation when he's you've had the success he's had over the years he's had it here how he turned the program around how we've won as many games as we did a year ago and then for it just fall off a cliff but you know the one thing that's people are not used to talking about in college football especially in the transfer era days is the rebuild you know you think about it when uh, a pro quarterback retires who you've had for five years or more you go oh we're going to rebuild for a year well you you had that and since happened with Holt Nailers and Pirate fans, and, and you know, rightfully so, don't want to hear about a rebuild. They want the team to st- you know pick up where they left off, and sometimes that's not realistic, and it's just unfortunate that it's been as tough of a situation as it has been. I think, I think the expectations were, all right, rebuild, take a step back, but just to, to fall off the cliff like this is, is just – I don't know. I just would have never saw this this coming, Philip. Like one in seven – and like Mike Houston with the culture he's built, it feels like we should never should never even have gotten to this point. But here we are. It's, it's just kind of like it almost feels like unreal. Yeah, but I think we're here. You see, just can't win a game. Yeah, and I th- I think we live in an era though, and I agree with you. I didn't see it coming, and it's something that would have not happened twenty years ago. And the reason I say that is football used to be so much more balanced. Half of winning the game was offense, half of it was defense. Unfortunately, now we live in an era where you know, old school guys are going to hate to hear me say this. It is offense that wins championships, kind of, as opposed to defense. And when the offense takes as big of a step back as it has, it makes it look like the whole team has taken a step back. And in the win-loss column, they have. And you win as a team and you lose as a team, and I get that. There's no I in team. But when we've struggled to put up points the way we have, that's kind of, I think, been the whole thing. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is we lost – four out of five offensive linemen, and you lose all of your big receivers and your starting quarterback. And, yeah, so to your point, we did expect a step back. It is bigger than we thought it would be. We did not see this coming, but the defense in this day and time can only make up for so much of the offense. And when the offense hadn't been good and the special teams has been meh, it's – I don't know, man. It's it's It really is weird. It's just – I don't know. I kind of feel like I'm beating a dead horse at this point. I mean, I know this game was a lot better, but – what more is there to say eight weeks into the season? I, I don't even know. Yeah, and, and I mean, look, the offense was better, but you know they still scored seventeen points when the game was on the line, offensively. Like they had the pick six, um, which you know accounts for uh, seven of the. Uh, I should say, I guess thirteen points when the game was on the line. Yeah, because they had the pick six, and then you scored a touchdown five seconds ago against UTSA's mostly second stringer. So. They did move the ball better and made bigger plays, but 
there's still a problem there and uh that that's just what's disappointing but uh i don't know i mean it, it's just it's kind of head scratching i mean I, I covering this program it's just it's hard to believe we've kind of reached this point but here we are uh with four games left michael jones says can gilbert get away with continuing to say nothing publicly when does the heat shift towards him and his job status I mean, John Gilbert's already – he made a statement earlier this season that expectations were high and with football, and that's not going to change. And I just don't think there's anything else for him to really say. Like, he's already said what the standard is. People know the standard's not being met. You know, Philip, can he say anything else at this point? Certainly nothing's going to make anybody happy until the end of the season. I just think there's only so many chances for the AD to come out and really address what's happening in season. And we've already seen it once. And I don't think the message would necessarily be any different right now. No, I think when you're an athletic director, you know, it's important to say things. But at the end of the day, actions speak louder than words with a guy like him. So the only thing that he can really come out and say is, yeah, I fired the coach or I told the coach to fire someone on staff. Because at the end of the day, I mean, like you said, he said, these are my expectations. They're not being met. What else is there to do right now? You know, if he goes out there and starts bad-mouthing the coach – then that's going to create turmoil in the high-ups part of the athletic department, and then that's going to trickle down to the team. And then you, that might think other coaches around, you know, the different programs that we have here, you know, they're going to be like, what's going to happen if I lose? Am I just going to get publicly bad-mouthed by the AD? That would be a really unprofessional move by John Gilbert, and that's why he hasn't done it. He's a professional guy. So I think without doing something that he would regret and something that would be totally out of character from the man that we both know – no, there's nothing else he can really do at this point and nothing else he can definitely say at this point. All right, let's get our final break in. We'll come back. We will wrap up the show on this reaction Monday. We've got some more comments we got to get to on YouTube and Facebook as well. This is Hoist the Colors. We'll be right back. All right, let's go. Back to Hoist the Colors with Steve and I go. Drink up me, hearty Joe Ho. 194.3, the game. Welcome back in. Got a few minutes left on this reaction Monday. Philip Pilkington is producing. Want to get to a few more comments. Bobby Harward, who joins us every Wednesday, except for last Wednesday when he and I were both sick with different elements. He says, what makes it worse, in my opinion, is losing to three teams that were competing in Conference USA last season. He says, granted, UTSA is a solid team. We've had 10 years to recruit American talent. Maybe the gap between Conference USA and the American isn't as big as I thought, he says, but you see UCF since the Houston struggle mightily jumping to the Big 12. Add to it losses to Sunbelt, App State and Marshall, both currently ranking 6th and 7th in the Sunbelt East standings. Okay, dead horse is beaten. I mean, that's the thing. Look, there's a lot of talk about NIL, and rightfully so. ECU needs to reevaluate what it is doing with NIL and pain, but – it's not like they're losing to a bunch of teams. Losing to SMU and Michigan is one thing. Those teams are spending a lot of money in NIL. Even Charlotte has heavily, under Biff Pogey, invested in NIL. I don't think it's as valid as an excuse year one. But you're, you're just losing to too many teams that, on paper, have even or less resources than you. Rice. Charlotte, we just talked about, of course. You know, I do think UTSA has – set a higher standard than most teams coming from Conference USA, Marshall, App. It's just with the schedule, that's what makes it most disappointing. If you were out here losing to Cincinnati, Houston, UCF, I think that would be one thing. But 
I don't know, Philip. It's it's just uh, you know the the combination of who you're losing to has made it that much tougher. Like the average fan too, if they see ECU loses to Charlotte, UTSA, or Rice, they are definitely not going to understand the dynamic. But I I think NIL for me is more of a hey, how do you fix it? If you want to fix it quickly, you got to spend it NIL money. But I don't see it as much of a valid excuse for what's happening this year. Like I think that is just misfiring, lack of preparation to get ready for some of these losses more so than not having the NIL funds. What about you? Yeah, I think NIL is one of those things. It's It hasn't really been around long enough to really play the NIL card yet at this level because right now everybody kind of forgets, you know, we're like the A's at the beginning of Moneyball, right? We had some big pieces last year like Avery Jones, and they got picked up by the teams that – we're able to establish NIL very, very quickly. When you look at losing an offensive lineman to Oregon, where Phil Knight went, losing an offensive lineman to Auburn, who's won so many national championships, but it's a lot harder for a mid, you know, a group of five program to establish that NIL as quick because our, in order for a guy to move up to a group of five, it means he's probably coming from an FCS place, and it's just. Like I said, I think eventually it kind of will be an excuse once we get it established, but we just don't have Phil Knight to just go write him a Nike check like he's, you know, writing a check to LeBron James or, or Cristiano Ronaldo like Oregon does. And, you know, this is part of the reason Maryland's been so good. You know, all of a sudden they've jumped up. Well, look at all the Under Armour money they've got. And it's it's a little bit harder to establish it very quickly at this lower level. Look, in SMU, they, they went out and they bought some transfers this season. There's a reason they just beat Tulsa, whatever. To, to three or something crazy. They've got, you know, next-level talent, so to speak. You know, Rice, these teams, like all these teams are losing players just like ECU. I mean, you look at UTSA, they lost one of their best receivers, I think, to Ole Miss or an SEC school or something. <laughs> Excuse me. But uh, those teams are losing pieces as well, along with East Carolina. So, I don't know, Philip. It's just it's one of those things where it's a valid excuse, but – uh. It's, I don't know, for me it's more long-term, more so than short-term, so that, that's kind of my take on it as well. Um, and uh, th- we had another comment here from Newton. I want to address this quick before we get out of here. He said, there appeared to be a lack of energy on ECU's sidelines. UTSA was jumping around and were pumped up. They also played a little dirty. I think two ejections ECU seemed to be lacking. I, <coughs> I kind of found, uh, I don't know, I found their sideline kind of corny. They were almost like trying too hard, and I get you want to bring some sideline energy, but for me, I didn't read too much into that. I think that was just one of those things where, look, their thing is to jump around, proud to kickoff, and that's what they do before every kickoff. ECU, I don't know, more business-like. I, you know, to me, that doesn't affect the game so much, but just kind of my two cents there on that. I thought it was just kind of corny, and I did think they took some cheap shots, but hey, at the end of the day... They were the better team. They won on the scoreboard, 41-27, to 27. and so props to them. Frank Harris, heck of a quarterback. Didn't enjoy all the whining, but it is what it is. All right, we got to get out of here and uh, appreciate everybody's comments and calls on today's show. We'll be back tomorrow at 12 noon live. We'll also be on YouTube and Facebook stream at 930 ahead of the Mike Houston press conference. We'll talk to you then. Hoist the colors with your host, Stephen Igo. Tune in weekdays at noon for all things ECU sports. Get a recap of the show at 943thegame.com on Twitter, Facebook, or anywhere you get your podcasts. We're back tomorrow with more of Hoist the Colors on 943 the game.